This episode of the Adoption Connection podcast is sponsored by the book, The Connected Parent, Real Life Strategies for Building Trust and Attachment, written by the late Dr. Karen Purvis and me. This new book for parents and caregivers combines the rich experience and scientific insights of Dr. Karen Purvis with personal stories from my parenting journey. There is hope for every child, every parent, and every family. Find out more about the book and get a free resource at onethinkfulmom.com slash book. Welcome to the Adoption Connection podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it and we're here for you. Welcome to episode 89 of the Adoption Connection podcast. You're about to get a little taste of what goes on behind the scenes here at the Adoption Connection. We had a bit of a snafu for this week's episode, but that might be a bit providential because it is allowing us to bring you an interview that feels much more timely. Lisa sat down with our friend Sue Bedeau all the way back in April and recorded two different episodes. One was on the importance of keeping siblings together, and one was on race. When we did our production schedule months ago, we planned on bringing you their conversation on siblings today. So back in May, we recorded the intro and outro. When I went to pull the episode together last week, I could not find what we recorded to save my life. Lisa just returned yesterday from her week of recording her audiobook in San Diego, so we didn't have time to redo anything. Since I had to record a new intro and outro solo anyway, we decided to bring you the conversation on race instead. So this week's guest, Sue Bideau, writes and speaks extensively on topics related to children, particularly those with special needs, and is a frequent and passionate keynote speaker and workshop leader at state, regional, and national conferences. We actually met Sue at the Cancelled Refresh Conference this year. She and her husband, Hector, are the lifetime parents of 22 children, two by birth and 20 adopted. Three of those children that they adopted had terminal illnesses and are now deceased. They have also served as foster parents for more than 50 children in three states and as a host family for refugee youth from Sudan, Kosovo, and Guatemala. Recently, their 35th grandchild and fourth great-grandchild were born. They have won numerous awards for their work, including being recognized by President Clinton with an Adoption Excellence Award and receiving the, the Angels in Adoption Award from Congress. Both of these awards were for their work on behalf of adoption and children in foster care. We think you'll appreciate Sue's depth of knowledge from her experiences. Let's listen in on Lisa and Sue's conversation. Welcome to the Adoption Connection podcast, Sue. I'm so glad you're here. Oh, I'm really excited to be having this conversation with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. Well, you are an expert in a number of different things. And today, what I want to talk with you about is transracial adoption. So in order to do that, why don't you just first introduce yourself a little bit, and then I would love to hear your family's very remarkable story. Well, thank you. Um, so I am Sue Bedeau, and I, I live in Philadelphia. So I'm chatting with you from my home here in Philadelphia today. And uh, I've been an adoptive parent for many years. Our first adoption took place almost 40 years ago, actually more than 40 years ago now. Uh, so uh, my husband and I, who were high school sweethearts, and then we went to college and got married, we right away started 
believing that we wanted to adopt, that then we became foster parents. And we've been on this really incredible journey since then that involved adopting 20. We had two by birth. We fostered about uh, 75 other children over the years. We've been host family to refugee um, families and young people, including unaccompanied minors from Sudan. So, you know, we've really had a, a range of these um, life experiences. And the very first child that we adopted came to us and from um, another uh, ethnic and racial background than our own. And we adopted, over the years, I said our lifetime family includes 22 uh, children that 20 are adopted. And I think, um, if I'm getting it right, nine of them are African-American and uh, six are Hispanic or Latino and a few are East Asian and, um, you know, the rest are, are Caucasian or some sort of mix. Um, so we, our family is very, very diverse racially, ethnically, uh, in, and in many other ways. <laughs> but um, our... Our, like I said, our very first child was not uh, the same race as us, but our process for adopting him didn't really address that so much of being an issue. And we didn't really think that would be an issue. And so we had to learn along with him and then along with each of our other children as they came into the family, what that really meant over time. And, and so you know, we went on, we adopted all those other children of other backgrounds. And each time I think we, we gained some new insight, we learned something new. And then of course, as they've become adults and as they've, you know, figured out who they're going to have life relationships with and um, the children that they're going to have and what that's going to look like in the world, uh, we continue walking this journey every day. It's not a journey that you just sort of learn about and now you've got it and you move on. This is something um, every day that we have to learn in our life and walk the journey with our children, learn from them, let them lead uh, in many instances, and, and just keep, keep being open to, you know, maybe I got it wrong before, but it's not too late to change. So can you tell us the difference between race and ethnicity? Sort of. <laughs> sort of, yeah. And the reason I say that really is that there are all these words that get used that really are all just human constructs. I mean, they're really, you know, race is a construct. There was a point in time in our country where being Irish was considered being a different race than other white Americans. And um, so it, it is a social construct created by people, and it's had different definitions over time. Uh, so, so there's not the same, it, it's not an easy uh, definition. You know, ethnicity usually has to do with um, country of culture and national origin, and it has a lot of uh, features like language, common bonds of language, common bonds of geography. Uh, so ethnicity is often connected with those uh, characteristics. Race is often generally defined by physical characteristics in our world, you know, skin color, facial shape, eye shape, hair, you know, characteristics like this that we determine into categories that socially over time have been defined as race. And there can be, therefore, people who have the same race but come from different geographic locations, different language histories, different religious histories, different cultural histories, so they have a different ethnicity but they're of the same race. Um, but 
in either case, there's a lot of our roots and a lot of our sense of identity that's, that's all woven in there with, with our sense of self and, and what is our race, what is our ethnicity, what is our culture, how do we experience the world, how does the world experience us? Um, so, you know, it's, it's a fluid kind of line, it's fluid definitions in some ways, but it's also experienced by people in very concrete, real ways. So a number of the children you adopted were older. And I don't know, did you already explain that? I'm not sure. You adopted three sibling sets in addition to one other. Is that correct? Do I have this right? Uh, we adopted three sets of siblings and then some children that were not, that came to our family one by one. Yeah. And what were the ages at the time that you're, like from oldest to youngest, you don't have to do every single one, just the range right. of when they joined your family. How old were they? So our oldest six kids are a set of siblings that all were teenagers when they joined our family. So they ranged from age 13 to 19 when they first came to our family. And our youngest was a, a newborn that um, was his mother, his birth mother, knew about our family and called us um, from the hospital saying, we'd like you to adopt our child. Uh, so that only happened once. We mostly did adopt a lot of older kids, but we went from a newborn to a, to a 19-year-old and pretty much lots of ages in between. So as you've grown in your understanding of transracial adoption, what are the things that you have learned that you could share with parents who are at the beginning or parents like me where, you know, we've adopted transracially and I still feel like I have so much to learn. And I know that's a really big question. So however you want to break it down, we're ready to learn. Yeah. So, you know, when we first started adopting our children, we really didn't think race mattered. I mean, literally we would say things like race doesn't matter. And, uh, you know, love is, we all have the same colored blood. We all love the same. I mean, those are really um, not helpful <laughs> statements. And it took us a while to learn that. And I don't remember us particularly saying this next thing I'm going to say, but we might have because we were kind of in that category for a while. The statement, um, love is colorblind or we're colorblind or people who say it wouldn't matter if, you know, I don't care if I adopt a purple child as long as it's a child. Um, so those, it, it's understandable for people who haven't spent a lot of time understanding and exploring the power and impact of race and racism and privilege and particularly white privilege in our, in our country in particular, but also all across the globe. If you haven't been steeped in that, if that hasn't been part of your life, then um, it's understandable to think, I just want to love a child and I'll, I'll love a child, you know, of any color or the same. Uh, but what we, so some of the things we learned and that I really try to help people see, and that first one is sort of that colorblind idea. If I say to you that your race doesn't matter, I'm saying, I don't see your identity. I don't see you. I don't. Who you are doesn't matter to me. Who you are is a unique person with all of you, with 100% of who you are, doesn't matter to me. When I say race doesn't matter, that means you don't matter. And you're, or that you're invisible to me. I don't really see you. I don't see who you really are. I see you as just who I want you to be or who I, who I want to project that I can love. Um, 
who you are either is invisible to me or doesn't matter to me. And I know that's not, that's not what we meant when we were in that category. And it's not what people today mean when they make those statements, but that's the impact that it has. And that's if we, if we take a step back and think more about it, that, that really is, um, you know, the impact it could have on anyone. You know, you can think of any part of your identity that you care deeply about. Um, and if someone says, oh, I don't see that, that doesn't matter to me, they're really dismissing who you are, your whole identity, who you were created to be. So it's, it's very painful. And once you start having that persona, once you start kind of, you know, having that way of interacting, and if you have your child who's hearing this, even if you adopt an infant or even a young child, but they're hearing this, then they realize, you know what, that's a topic. And that's a part of my life experience that has to be shut off in this separate room, in this separate place. And I can't go to my parents about that because they, they, they not only don't get it, they're not willing to try to get it. They don't even see that part of me. And so for many who are adopted, that becomes very painful, that can be very traumatizing, but it also creates just a wall of disconnect that, or a, I shouldn't even say a wall, it's more like a chasm that gets wider over time as the child then grows into a, a teen and then grows into an adult and wants to, um, you know, be a whole person and wants to understand how their whole being makes them who they are, but yet there's part of it that they can't even really um, talk about with their parents because their parents have said this sort of, oh, I'm colorblind or I don't see race kind of um, view of the world. So that's one of the first things that we learned very early on and that I really encourage people like, don't say that. Try to see, see race, see race, see color, see eyes, see hair, see your whole child see your whole neighbor, see people for who they are for the whole person, and then build your relationship on that, not on I don't see, you know, a big part of who you are. So that, that's really one of the, the first, and I would say, really important lessons. Um, I have some more so I can keep going, but I didn't You keep going. <laughs> yes, <laughs> keep going. This is awesome. Keep going. Then the next thing we have to learn is to be able to actually say, if we're white in this country, we have to say, uh, I participate in racism in this country and I have privilege. Okay, and that's going to be really hard for a lot of people, right? None of us want to say we participate in racism. So tell us more. Right. So, so in order to be able to own that and say that, we have to understand uh, there's a difference between bias or prejudice and racism. So bias or prejudice can be between one person and another or about one thing or another. So I can be biased or prejudiced against all the people that live in that zip code or all the people of a certain color or all the people of, um, who speak or have this certain accent or worship a certain way. And I can, that can be a personally held bias or prejudice that I might have. And then how I enact that, what I do with that, uh, that's on me. That's a personal thing. And I can either own it and I can learn about it and I then can grow and I can change that. I can, I can change how I interact with people. I can have a bias that I once had and then I can learn something different and I can change and I can have a different uh, understanding of not only that person but or that culture or, or myself and why I had that bias. That's bias and prejudice. That's personal. That's 
internal, external, one-on-one in relationships, or that's not the same as racism. Racism that exists in the world can contribute to our personal biases and prejudices because of racism that might influence our biases and prejudices. But racism is when we take collective, long-term biases and prejudices and then put them into systems so it becomes systemic. And when whole systems are systems of law, systems of finances, systems of education and who gets what opportunities, when whole systems, political systems, when whole systems are imbued with uh, those biases and those prejudices, then it becomes racism. Or as one um, way that we teach it in a class that I teach is that racism is that prejudice and bias plus power. So when it's not just one person's individual bias, but it's a collective uh, bias that then got into power and you add the power into the equation and it has the power of law, it has the power of uh, other government regulations, it has the power of masses of people, <laughs> then it becomes racism. Our country and the whole world, but you know, let's talk about our country food right now. Our country has, um, is built on a lot of structures that were created through prejudice plus power, racism. Many of us who are white, we benefited from that. We didn't choose it. It doesn't make us bad people that we were born into that. We, but we have to acknowledge we benefited from it. If you were born into a family that had, regardless of race right now, just to give a different example, if you were born into a family that um, had no, uh, no um, medical conditions that are passed on, no genetic medical conditions that they passed on to you, you benefit from that compared to you might know someone who was born into a family that has some medical condition that's passed on through the family, then they have a harder lot in life. If you're born into a family that has enough financial resources and they sent you to private schools and you got a really great education, you benefit from that. You know, you might not have chosen it. You may not have um, participated in the decision that got you to that place, but then you can say, you know what, I benefited from that. And if I had lived two zip codes away and my parents didn't have that money and I went to that other school, I wouldn't have gotten a good, as good an education and I might not be where I am today. So even in spite of um, whatever we individually do, uh, and, and therefore you can be poor and you can be white and you can have struggled a lot, but you've, you, so, so having privilege doesn't mean you have no challenges in life having privilege doesn't mean you have no struggles. It just means whatever challenges and struggles you did have, race wasn't one of them. Race wasn't one of them. So you have a benefit that whatever other struggles you have, that particular struggle wasn't one of them. And that struggle that race puts into the equation in our society is built into so many of our systems. And even though people say, oh yeah, well that was back during slavery times or that was back during the civil war, uh, or that was back during civil rights 50 years ago, um, many institutions that uh, may have been partly dismantled during some of those times still have lingering impacts to this day. And you can trace those impacts and you can trace them and how they related to where people were even allowed to live and how where you were allowed to live then again impact what kind of schools you can go to or what kind of air you can breathe or if there's pollution in the water that you have to drink. Uh, so there's still today this systemic 
impact of racism in our country that still has a stronghold. Jim Wallace, uh, you asked me, if, I, I can give you other books, but Jim Wallace wrote a book about this for the church in particular, where he talks about racism being what he calls America's original sin. And he breaks a lot of this down for the church. So that would be uh, one, one book that I definitely would recommend. But um, it's this idea to understand that even though I may not have personal or may not feel that I have personal prejudice, I may strongly believe that I don't, I may truly not. Uh, I still have benefited from the systemic racism that exists. And as soon as I can at least acknowledge and recognize that, then I can also acknowledge and recognize I've benefited. My child is going to have a double-edged sword here. Part of the time, because my child is in my home, they're going to get a little inoculation. They're going to get a little of that benefit, especially when they're a young child. Because I'm going to live in those neighborhoods, or I'm going to have opportunities as a parent that perhaps an African-American parent might not have, or a Latino parent might not have. And so my child's going to kind of get some of that. But at, the older they get and the more they start getting out into the world on their own, I'm not going to be able to protect, I'm not going to be able to pretend that racism doesn't exist. I can, but it's not going to help my relationship with my child. It's not going to help my child. So I shouldn't pretend that it doesn't exist, but also I can't protect them from it. They're going to experience it. And so how do I help equip them for that uh, when I haven't truly experienced it myself? What's it going to take for me to equip myself, but also to help equip my child? But most importantly, to keep that door of communication open. So this is not a taboo subject. This is something that we haven't said, oh, I don't see that part of who you are uh, or any of that, that we keep it an open conversation. So the openness of the conversation, the willingness to acknowledge, now I get it, now I see that I have benefited from things that my, my African-American brothers and sisters have not benefited from historically in our whole country. And so that's going to affect my child too. And how do I, how do I have these hard conversations? How do I, how do I learn without, without harming people while I'm learning? Uh, or when I do inadvertently, then how do I acknowledge that and move on? Okay, this is going back a little ways in our conversation, but would you be able to give an example of sort of the privilege, like, okay, for me, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and I don't think I understood at all how different things were for other people and different parts of the country and different experiences because I was growing up white in the Pacific Northwest. So um, when I read a book called Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race, okay, I learned. Uh, by the way, any books that we mention will be in the show notes. And Sue's also going to give me another list of resources. So don't worry about remembering this all right now. You can look at the show notes later. But she gave an example of this systemic racism going back to, I think, the end of World War II. Is that when the GI Bill came out? Can you, can you kind of flesh out this idea, give sort of uh, what it may have actually looked like for a white person and a black person and how that took their, them forward and their families forward to really where we are now? Yeah, so absolutely. Um, 
you people may have heard the term redlining when it comes to who can buy a house or not, but may not even understand where it originally comes from. After the war, when the soldiers were returning and there were large numbers of African-American soldiers returning along with uh, white soldiers, uh, that the U.S. government and the Congress decided we want to do something to help our our heroes to to really have success in society. We want to help them. You know, they many times their inter educations were interrupted uh, to go to war. They either you know didn't even finish high school or finished high school but didn't get to go to college, and now they you know they didn't really have. Uh, good places to live when they came back, conditions were crowded, that idea of owning your own home as the American dream was sort of just kind of starting really even in our country. And so legislation was actually created that provided opportunities for housing in particular is, is the one really big example, uh, financing for mortgages that you could get if you were white and you could not get if you were black. And you could get if you were buying property in a certain neighborhood and you couldn't get if you were buying a property in a different neighborhood. And so, and it was in the code of law, it was written in law and it was, you know, actually underscored for bankers and others with red pen. That's where, you know, red line and they took maps and they drew with a red line around it. Here's the neighborhoods we want to finance mortgages for, and these were white suburban or areas that were going to become the suburbs, which didn't even exist at the time. Um, and here's where, we, here's the people, if they live in these zip codes, which were primarily African-American neighborhoods, we, they, we won't even give a loan to anyone from that neighborhood, even if they're a returning GI. And so, um, so it's, while there had been segregation before this, uh, this ability to even get a mortgage to buy a home was now codified in law. So you have these two soldiers coming back, you can think, okay, well, maybe it was my grandfather, two grandfathers um, coming back from the war, fought side by side, fought for our freedom, fought for our country, but they come back and they go to their two neighborhoods where they grew up and the white grand, the white young man who later becomes, you know, someone's grandfather, um, you know, is able to get, a federally backed mortgage and buy a house out in this nice new area that's now what we're going to call the suburbs that we didn't really have before and then continue along in that neighborhood uh, lots of other people are also buying houses there it's very stable they can they fund schools the schools are not crowded the education are good so then their sons or daughters have a good education have a good opportunity to go to college also, their home has equity, so they start building up some wealth. And even if it's not wealth in the idea of being wealthy, it's they're having some equity, they're having something that they can pass on to that son, whether they pass it on through um, supporting their, their education, whether they help them have a down payment on their house, or whether it's something they get years later through a will. They have something that they can pass on, so then that next generation has a head, a head start and they can. You know, and then it keeps going, and we hear about you know each generation sort of having better opportunity than the one before. But meanwhile, the African American soldier goes back to his zip code, his neighborhood. He can't get that same loan. He can't buy a house, so he has to continue uh, renting. Not you don't get equity when you continue to rent your whole life, um, and he so he doesn't have any equity to pass on. Also, his children then 
uh, continue to have to live in this neighborhood that's that there's been less social investment in, less government, less financial investment in. So the schools uh, have less resources. Their children get less um, quality in terms of education, so they don't get to go to. And then that that next generation has parents who didn't have any equity, who didn't have the chance to send them to college, who didn't get an education that even could provide them the chance to go to college. So they're starting here while that other son is starting here. And then that's, and it goes from there to the next generation. Now there's exceptions, of course, on both sides. And everyone can always point to that and say, well, I know this person who did this and they rose above it. But the system itself was designed to make those exceptions less likely and to make it a lot harder. So it's not the common experience. The common experience was how I just described it. So you have these two completely different paths, not because the individual people, one was smarter or one was worked harder or one did a better job serving the country over in, you know, their, where they were stationed in France or something. They both had the same thing, but when they came back, their path took a very different turn because of things that were actually written into the law and enforced by the weight of law, by the weight of policy, by the uh, weight of how the mortgage companies and banks worked. So even decades later, when that got removed from law, meanwhile, those two families had were in very different places in terms of their ability to have equity, in terms of where they were able to live, in terms of what they were able to provide for their children and their grandchildren. So that's just one example. I think that, for me, that example really began to help me understand white privilege. You know, that really began to open my eyes to what, what that means. So let's bring it back around to adoptive parents. And, you know, I think most of us have hearts. We want to do the very best for our kids. But let's say we adopted transracially how do we actually parent our kids well? What do we need to do beyond the, the things you've already explained more practically day to day? What do we need to do to honor and recognize our children's race and help them grow up to be the people they are meant to be? Yeah. So I think the next really hard thing that we have to try to do is to live in areas where our children are not going to be isolated from people of their own race and culture. Uh, we lived in Vermont when we were adopting most of our kids, and it's a beautiful state, and it's a wonderful place to live, but like your experience in the Pacific Northwest, um, our experience in Vermont was very different as well, and, you know, it really was not a, a, a place where our children were likely to run into any other uh, African-American kids on the playground at school or or anywhere else, or adults, particularly adults, importantly adults, they weren't going to run into African-American adults doing jobs, you know, being their teacher at school or having, uh, being the banker at the bank or being the doctor, at the, you know, they weren't going to see adults who look like them, who were in this community, uh, participating in the life of the community. And so um, that was one of the reasons we left from Vermont and moved to Philadelphia, that we felt, you know, it's really important that we live in an area where our children have that opportunity to um, see and live with and grow up with uh, and see adults as well as peers that uh, have similar um, backgrounds and stories and experiences and some who don't, but who at least look like them and who they can 
uh, see that there's all these opportunities um, for for them and for other people. So I think choosing where you live and really thinking hard about it uh, is really critical. And you know, does that mean every single adopted transracial adopted family has to move and make a major move like that from Vermont to Philadelphia? No, I wouldn't judge what each family has to do, but I am saying you have to think really seriously about that. You have to look at what is my child's experience. Also, you know, even in recent times as we went through the coronavirus pandemic, um, a lot of us experienced a lot of sense of isolation. I mean, the term that was used, social distancing, even if we're in home with our families, whoever, but we've experienced a lot of sense of isolation. Think about our kids of color if they're growing up in a community where there's no other people that look like them, to, an, to a strong degree, they're experiencing that sense of isolation every single day. Um, that sense of being different, that sense of maybe I don't quite fit in or belong. And not all of them are gonna express that. Not all of them are even gonna fully uh, notice that until, they, until some other experiences happen in their life. But imagine that feeling of isolation, especially social isolation being your day-to-day experience, not just for a few weeks or a few months of a global crisis, but for your entire life. Uh, So I think adoptive parents really have to think seriously about where do I live? Who do I surround myself with? Who are my adult friends? When my kids see me invite someone over for dinner or go out, you know, with my spouse on a date with two other couples, are they only seeing me hang out with white people? Are the only people of color in my life my children or my children and other adoptive families' children? (laughs) You know, so we have to really look um, with intention at our whole life and try to look at it through the eyes of our children and say, what are they seeing? What are they experiencing? And is this creating a sense of disconnect, a sense of social isolation, a sense of, well, everyone in this little circle accepts me, but I'm not really the same as anyone and I don't really fit in. Uh, So really looking at those things, where do I go to church? What gym do I use? All of those things, like looking at it from those eyes, uh, is this something that sort of magnifies the world of being just a white person walking through the world? Or does this, are all the choices I make something that magnifies walking through the world as a diverse family, as a family that includes people of color? Okay, so considering where we live and who our friends are and who our children's friends are, that's important. I think church is really important too. You know, um, we can choose to worship in more diverse churches, and I think that's important. Um, So what else? What would your next piece of advice be for parents? Well, I think you have to continue to educate yourself, and therefore you have to be willing for hard conversations. You have to be willing for you have to be willing to be vulnerable uh, and take risks. You know, it's, it's not that it should be the responsibility of people of color to educate uh, us, but it is our responsibility to take the opportunities to learn wherever we can. So by just being, by just being with people, by having friends, by really being fully in community with people who are, have different racial and or ethnic backgrounds than ourselves and really listening. Pay attention when you're in a a room of adults where there's a mixture of races, who does most of the talking? It's often the white people. 
do we create spaces or do we participate in spaces where we're the one that's going to listen and we're really going to listen and we're going to listen even when it's hard or even when it makes us feel vulnerable and we're not going to say yeah but or we're not going to say what about or i hear you i get you but we're going to absorb and we're going to listen and we're going to reflect and then supplement that with things like reading those kinds of books that you mentioned and you know, watching docu, there's a whole documentary about that redlining um, story, you know, learning things that way as well. And learning and with it really that open mind saying, starting it out by saying, you know, what do I need to learn from this experience? And being open to that. And really checking ourselves on that, yeah, but, or that used to be me, it's not me anymore. Or yeah, that's those other people, but not me. But really saying, how can I, what do I need to grow? How do I need to grow from this experience? Do you think it's important for um, adoptive parents to have books and art and other things in their homes or even traditions in their homes that reflect their children's race or ethnicity? I do, but I think that you have to be careful about that too. Um, I once was speaking with a young teenage girl who had been adopted actually from Korea. And she said, Oh yeah, my parents, they put, they had Korean art on the wall and they, we had Korean food sometime and things like that. I, uh, however they presented it or however it came across, I always felt like, well, we're doing this for you. You know, it's because you're here that we're eating this or, you know, because you rather than, this is now part of who our whole family identity is. This is something we all collectively appreciate and enjoy. Um, and so they never, they would, they would make a point, you know, if they're serving Korean food, this is Korean food tonight. But, you know, my mom, she um, grew up with an Italian family. She wouldn't make a point of saying, oh, we're having Italian food tonight because I grew up Italian. Um, and she would sometimes serve an Italian meal, but there was no like, oh, this is really special. Pay attention here. I'm doing something important. Um, so I think that those things are important, but we have to be careful that we do it in a way that's really uh, this is who we are as a whole identity rather than I'm doing this for you. And that makes you feel even more isolated or more um, like I don't quite fit in or belong. Okay. That is really interesting and really important even for me to hear. So thank you. Okay. We don't have a lot of time left. Give us any tips or other things we should be thinking about or learning about. I think, um, I'm going to say two things that are kind of polar opposites a little bit, but I think are equally important. And one is, so we have to be willing to get involved and be in, in uh, racial equity efforts in our community, whatever that might look like. And it might mean uh, taking some risks and it might being mean getting a little more political than we might be comfortable with on certain issues. Uh, I mean, I'm comfortable with it. I like that stuff, but not everyone is. Uh, but I, I think we have to not just be passive. We have to be active. That's the serious side of my last thing I would say. And then the less serious side is we also have to, we have to be willing to be playful and have a little bit of sense of humor about it. So, um, you know, we take these issues seriously. We talk about them. We're open about them. We're learning. We moved, like I said, our whole family. But we also would do things like um, some one time, you know, I can remember a specific time with my, one of my African-American daughters sat on the couch in between my husband and I who are both white and said, look, we're in a reverse Oreo cookie or, you know, just sort of um, 
same daughter. She's the one with the, uh, that, that quirky humor, but same daughter one time was sitting on the porch eating a chocolate bar and two um, small five or six-year-old white uh, children came up to the door looking for one of our other kids and uh, to, to play. And they were kind of eyeing her chocolate bar and they, she said, oh, looks like you want some chocolate. And they, they kind of nodded and said, Nope. She said, I ate too many chocolate bars and look what happened to me. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so, um, you know, are those perfect jokes? I don't know. Do I recommend using the exact jokes? That's not my point. It's that we have to also allow for some, you know, a valve of some humor, some playfulness, not to take ourselves too seriously uh, if we're going to actually uh, be a family together and move through this. And I think we can have some fun learning things like about our children's hair care. Wow. I mean, I learned how to braid. I was never as good as my daughter who, my oldest daughter did a lot of braiding with me and she's now a surgeon. So I think her hands are a little better than mine, but we used to spend hours braiding. And now, you know, with our boys, I don't cut their hair, but I have a son who is actually an engineer and he spent a lot of time trying to learn. He's cut his friend's hair for a long, long time and his brother's, but he's spent a lot of time learning how to cut black hair. And so we've had fun just learning as a family. And uh, one of my boys is working really hard to have waves in his hair. I mean, there's just a whole world we can learn about. And I, I think we have to stay open hearted, but I think we do have to be intentional to learn from other people. That's right. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Sue. Um, I will definitely be getting resources from you to share with our listeners. We'll be including all of those in the show notes. And I just appreciate you spending time with us today. Great. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. I am so glad Lisa had this conversation with Sue. Even though the news and social media are having conversations around race more now than ever, these are conversations that are relevant to transracial adoptive families all of the time. We don't have the privilege of setting these conversations aside when the news cycle switches to something else. I appreciate Sue's advice to not take ourselves too seriously. That's certainly been my perspective and how I've handled it. But I want to take this opportunity to reiterate again that we have to follow our kids' leads. I've interacted with adoptees who aren't in a place to take issues of race and identity lightly. If you'd like more help navigating this fragile issue in your family, make sure you're in our free private Facebook group. It's a safe place to ask questions and get practical advice. We strive to be the kindest adoption group on the internet. You can join us at theadoptionconnection.com slash Facebook. Also, if you'd like to connect with Sue, her website and Facebook page are linked in the show notes, along with the book Lisa mentioned and additional resources. You can find those at theadoptionconnection.com slash 89. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work, and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.